Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, a podcast for embedded Linux developers. Hi, uh, welcome to Linux Link Radio. Uh, this is Gene Sally. I'm joined uh, today with Maciej Halash. Uh, both of us are actually back in, in, in the audience, uh, not in the audience, but back here in Pittsburgh again. Uh, we've been traveling about, and so we haven't had a chance to do a, a show where we talk, uh, we've been together. So um, I, I feel really bad because either one of us, I think, doesn't do a, a better job or doesn't do as good of a job as, as when we were, uh, when we talked together. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it has been a while since uh, we got to uh, do a show together, as Gene said, and uh, uh, for the past few shows, you got to listen to each of us uh, separate, and uh, the energy I know is a bit low because of the uh, fact that there was no that interaction that usually happens. But today, we have um, we would like to actually uh, talk about uh, um, fast boot time, uh, what it takes to uh, get the Linux kernel up and running very fast on a card, and what we see um, customers do to optimize that um, that phase of a, of a boot time. Um, we'll, we'll talk a bit about uh, both kernel space and uh, user land space and, um, uh, well, hopefully some ideas will flow out of that. Well, that's a big problem our customers have. I mean, a, a lot of folks, when we talk to them, we've been out so doing customer meetings, and when things come to the top uh, with respect to priority and importance in their projects, having something start quickly it really is of great importance to our customers. And they, it, some of them have divine, devised some pretty interesting schemes to make things go faster. And there are a lot of standard, very generic approaches you can take in order to get uh, a greatly increased uh, kernel boot time. Uh, and and I know one of the things, we'll talk about this later without you know hitting you over the kind of TimeSys product stuff, but one of the things we're doing at TimeSys is, is knowing that we're, gonna, we're putting more effort into creating things that simply that boot faster, that do a lot of the tricks uh, that our customers are doing, uh, or that we do for our customers, if they if they work with us that way, in order to get their system up and running as quickly as possible. And you know, one of the things that that Maciej brought up is, uh, you know, the, the the two places you can work on are, are the kernel or user space. And obviously, the kernel, well, that starts first. So that's yeah. a, a great place to start when you think about cutting down boot time. Yes, absolutely. So. Uh, today, Linux kernel, as you probably all know, um, has grown in size, uh, well, significantly compared to uh, early versions. So there's more code available in the Linux kernel. There's um, more protocols, more functionality that's available to end users. And um, more of that functionality is enabled by default in a kernel just to make the development easy. Um, well, the trade-off here is that um, if you build a uh, an embedded device that is supposed to boot fast, uh, well, most of the uh, functionality that's enabled by default is not really needed. Um, when you are in the final stages of um, having uh, Linux components ready for deployment and uh, you deploy on a device, let's say, some sort of a, a measurement device, a field measurement device where um, end user presses a power on button and wants to see uh, some sort of uh, information um, on a display in a matter of a few seconds, um, that initial startup is very important. So um, what, do, what can you do? What do we see customers do? Um, well, we've seen several approaches. We've seen an approach where customers um, simply 
remove unneeded device drivers from Linux kernel configuration. They strip the kernel from any unnecessary um, networking protocols. And as a matter of fact, uh, when we talk about networking, um, in most cases, um, well, networking is either not needed or when it's needed, um, static IP address um, is a sufficient approach for whatever uh, application is doing. Um, all of those things help save time and accelerate the boot process. Yeah. Well, I don't think people really have a grip, too, uh, if, you're, if you're new to Linux, and exactly how much time is spent getting all those devices initialized. Yeah. It is really an incredible amount of time that's spent. And I know you can see the output, which is another thing, but I know you can see the output as the system's initializing things, but even in certain cases, if you don't have devices on your board, the system still goes through some pauses and there'll be some wait states as it decides that it can't find what it's looking for. Um, you know, users get a great, uh, a great perceived increase in boot time whenever they get rid of some of their USB drivers because those actually will try to pull you know, a USB bus for a little bit and, yeah. it, and it'll cost them you know, a quarter of a second. Yeah. And you may not think that's a lot, but if you go through those, that sort of pulling activity across 10 devices, well, that's a lot of quarter of seconds, right? So, Absolutely. Uh, and, and you really pay. And then the, the other bit about that, too, is whenever you start pruning down your kernel, of course it becomes smaller, but that smaller image size also contributes to a faster boot time as well because it's just less yeah. stuff to shuffle around. Absolutely. So so you actually get the benefit, uh, dual benefit. You, you get a, a small deployment size, but you also get the benefit of uh, faster boot time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another thing that I, I guess you've mentioned already, Gene, is um, uh, booting messages are not needed after you deploy um, your solution on that handheld device in the field. So suppressing those messages from uh, showing up on a, on a display is uh, going to significantly uh, uh, improve the boot up or startup time. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that's definitely one of the first things that um, I would advise uh, people to do, um, especially if they have already tested uh, the solution. They know that um, they have all the right devices and they don't don't have any any overhead from... um, as you said, polling of um, of devices that are not even present on a on, in a system. So, with that, um, you can optimize the the boot up time, the startup time of the kernel itself uh, to a matter of seconds. Yeah, well, that, that is an important this is an important thing to to think about too, and and that is to make sure that you that you don't do things like get get rid of your messages until you really need to. Yeah, I was I was dealing with a customer. Uh, uh, and they were having all manner of problems getting their board to boot. And I, I found out, you know, after talking to them, because they were really frustrated, but after talking to them, I found out that they couldn't see any of their kernel boot messages. Hmm. And as a result, couldn't really diagnose the system. Oops. And yeah, so, you know, it, it's one of those things where, I guess, you know, as someone that does you know, software engineering and used to the practices, I mean, you want to make sure it works first, and then you can optimize it later. But, yeah. but yeah, as soon as you turn off those messages, when you have problems, the first thing you do is turn them back on. But certainly, don't turn them off, and then, and then, then try to diagnose your system without seeing that. Because even though that kernel output may be noise for a regular starting system, it's it's positively vital. Yeah. Uh, whenever you're doing you absolutely know, system debugging, you you want to do that absolutely when you're ready to deploy, not at any earlier phase in your development cycle. Yeah. Because as you said. 
there might be some lingering issues or messages that um, might be of critical nature to uh, your application, and it's still worth seeing them. And um, well, so we, we've talked about one um, approach that customers take to uh, accelerate the boot up time. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, um, where the, t the time from when you press the power on button to when you see the uh, something on a display is critical. Customers also um, select an approach of uh, staged booting. Uh, oh, yeah. So, in other words, w what that is is uh, they move most of the device drivers, the initialization code, um, to um, uh, modules, they compile them as modules, and they uh, export them to uh, an initial RAM file system or, system or mm -hmm. a RAM disk, um, leaving only one or two device drivers built into the kernel. Yeah. Um, those initial two device drivers um, usually are responsible for bringing up the display and, uh, and also for um, providing that initial experience uh, to end user, um, after which, uh, well, end user won't see that, but uh, the kernel loads the initial RAM file system and initializes the modules in parallel mm -hmm. to users seeing certain output on a on the LCD display. Yeah, and that, I mean that's a very practical. It's one of those things where I'm I'm willing to bet when I say I'm willing to bet, but I know you get something that actually takes longer to boot when mm -hmm. you follow that mechanism. However, whenever the user sees the messages and sees the output, their perception about how long the system is taking to boot changes. And, and that's one of the, the classic computer tricks, uh, yeah. is that you, know, you have to do a little bit of person hacking and understanding what the observer sees uh, and tuning your system a little bit, because that does introduce extra overhead. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the kernel has to do an ints mod, and you know, linking a module, you're doing a, a, when you're inserting a module, really what you're doing is doing a dynamic link. Yeah. And so you have to pay the overhead of doing that dynamic link um, however, from the user's perspective, there's activity occurring, uh, and so, uh, and they see output from the device. So their feeling about how long it took to boot is yep. is greatly is greatly changed. Yeah, because they, all they see is the device powered on uh, in a matter of uh, one or two seconds, whereas uh, it took five or ten seconds to initialize all the other components or peripherals inside the device that mm -hmm. are responsible for, for example, outputting some of the data via Wi-Fi to, uh, to your computer. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and, I, and I've seen this approach happening on multiple occasions. Um, as you said, this is a bit of a trade-off because um, um, the absolute time that kernel takes to boot is a bit longer Yes. And also the size of a root file system grows um, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. But the Linux kernel size uh, shrinks also a little bit. So, mm -hmm. but overall, um, staged um, boot approach um, increases um, an ultimate booting time and footprint. But mm -hmm. the end user perception, of course, improves. Yes, yeah, and, and fortunately, I mean, BusyBox has Insmod. And so you can get a very, very small ints mod, at least for your root file system, so you're not taking up too much space. And you can use a, a, a shell like Nash, if you like, mm. uh, as well, the, you know, to get things up and running. And then that way, you know, Nash itself is very flyweight, doesn't really support console or anything. It's enough to execute shell files. And so uh, there are all kinds of space-saving tips, uh, or space-saving techniques, rather, 
uh, once you decide to go the stage boot, stage booting route, which for said depending upon the device and the type of peripherals that are initializing, can make a lot of sense uh, with respect to how users perceive how the machine starts. Yeah. Um, well, and again, uh, today we see uh, more powerful processors uh, present on the market, which which well, greatly improves the the boot up time. Um, however, when you when you look at the size of the Linux kernel itself, um, the default configurations, um, this is again uh, kind of a, a trade off because um, you get faster processor, but you get also more devices. So oh, yeah. you have to do a bit more of pruning uh, within the kernel. To get a solution um, that that would work for uh, for your end user. Yeah. So so far we've talked a lot about a little bit, but mostly everything that happens before the initial user thread is started. Hmm. And um, a- and in fact, there's a, a whole bunch of space uh, space, a whole bunch of time to be saved once that starts too. Um, you know, when you use when you flip on your desktop computer, it goes through what system five and it right, which yes. has to be from what the seventies. Yeah. Easily, it's from the seventies. But but one thing about System Five is it's optimized for configurability mm-hmm. and not for speed. Yes. Uh, and it, you know, in order to get, as a matter of fact, it's almost a perfect trade-off that's made. I mean, in order for you to get all that configurability, this it has to go and read files and fish through the file systems and run a lot of shell scripts. And you know, users that need to to get something running quickly. One of the first things they do is take a good look at their initialization script and factor out nearly everything that System Five uh, uh, brings to the table because it's not important for their system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, even for example, I know folks that are, are you know more experienced with Linux realize that you can set the initial program, the the, the name of the initial thread, right on the kernel command line, yeah. and so depending upon what your system is doing, you can uh, you can just Run your program if you like, um, uh, and, and not bother with system initialization at all. But there's some penalties involved there as well. Uh, and, and again, it, it I think comes back to uh, what, what usually the default configuration for Linux is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is usually a, a, a big init um, tree of programs, mm-hmm. uh, startup scripts, uh, kill scripts, um, a, a desktop uh, Linux starts at least 15 to 20 different services. Oh, yeah. Embedded Linux starts maybe half of it, but that half of those services alone can take um, anywhere between 30 seconds and, and sometimes minutes to um, uh, really get an end user to, to a prompt, mm-hmm. uh, to a to place where application, end user application would start. Yeah. Um, so... Clearly, eliminating those um, services uh, would help out, and uh, and that would be, I guess, second, or if not first, step that end users would um, would take in, in optimizing the boot up time. Yeah, well, and, and it's too if you're using a system like BusyBox. I know mm-hmm. a lot of folks out there use BusyBox on their on their target. I mean, that's a system where you know there is no well, part of what System Five offers are these run levels, right? And BusyBox has no concept of a run level. And if, if you go into your, let's say if you use a NIT, and I want to talk in a second about why you probably still want to use a NIT, but when you use a NIT to start up your system, you can simply have a call your script at sysinit to run everything that you're interested in and then do a respawn on your program. Mm-hmm. And, and you're set. And, and even if you take that route, it still serializes, which is the important thing. It still serializes on those system init, init tasks. 
Um, but you do get around you know, the shell script that then walks a directory, that then opens a file, that then sees if you know, then runs grep against another directory, and, and on and on and on in order for it to do the system configuration tasks. Um, but you know, a lot of users take that route. They'll just write mm-hmm. their own script and they'll say, you know, here's the four services I want to start, and they'll just directly execute the commands to start them. And you know, they'll cut their system boot up time by a factor of ten, just mm-hmm. by fact just by removing all that system mm-hmm. five init overhead. And, and it, when you take the uh, staged booting approach, um, it, this actually might work as well. Um, because if you s- provide that experience to end user that system is already running, but mm-hmm. in the background you, you bring up two or three services, that, that would still work, right? Mm-hmm. A- and that's one way of hiding from end user the complexity of a boot or startup process, yet um, having that system uh, five in it uh, in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things you'll need to do, and they said this, they're always, engineering is always about managing trade-offs. I mean, some of the trade-offs you'll have to get into is you'll have to be smart enough application-wise to wait yeah. <laughs> until you have all your services started. And it does introduce some code. Um, I know some folks that, that even inside their own program, instead of them using uh, a sysinet, and waiting, they'll actually in their in their program start up the threads themselves because mm-hmm. then they can start up the thread. They can detach it and push it into the background, but they can put a weight against that until the thread is started up and do a better job of of, of serializing their application. You know, they can pr- provide some output to the user, and then as these systems are starting up, they'll watch the threads until they're in the right state. So when you talk about threads, Gene, you, you mean actually threads that run services. Yes. Well, you know what? I, that's, a, that's a really good point because th- I probably want to say process and not mm-hmm. thread. I, I'm a little bit too Linuxy, right? It's all a thread <laughs> to me. But no, you're right. No, these are processes. Uh, it is. A, it, I mean, you're not really uh, you're not really starting an application thread in, in terms of sharing memory space, but rather you're starting up a separate process. Th- thanks. Oh, anytime. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, that's a really good point. That's a really good. Um, point. Well, so another area that. Um, I think is important to customers is um, how they optimize the entire application. And again, there are several uh, ways in which um, I've seen customers do that. Um, in case of simple applications where um, there's just one application module, um, end users want to um, save on the link time, and they tend to uh, build all the symbols into a binary, so they link statically at the compile time. Sure. And um, they push um, that one module application into an initial RAM file system, mm-hmm. um, and, and that way, um, application itself can start um, running very fast. Yes. Um, another approach, well, in, in some cases, um, Customers can't avoid um, really linking to a shared library. Uh, that might be a, a case where uh, a shared library is really a part of the application, and um, customer wants to maintain upgradability of that um, oh, shared sure. library in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you simply keep the symbols that are important to. Um, uh, upgradability in that library, and you link all the rest of the symbols um, with your application. Mm-hmm. That's a, a t- yeah, that's a totally practical approach because it's another one of those issues where you know libraries, dynamic libraries, right, mm. have to go through a link step. 
I mean, there's a there's a program that you have to put, it just takes up space on your root file system. It's a program that's actually executed with your program as a parameter, is what really happens with, by the operating system. And then it does all the simple fix-ups for you, and then it runs your program. Yeah. And you pay for that. I mean, you really do pay for that. And if you're if you're counting quarter of a second or tenths of a second, yeah. uh, depending upon the speed and performance of your system, th- that can add up to sometimes half a second of time, yeah. uh, three quarters of a second of time, which is you know, could be could put you over your budget. Yeah. And uh, so I actually have seen also um, another approach um, implemented by one of our customers, where a customer wanted to uh, start up part of the application as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. So a uh, customer implemented a staged booting mm-hmm. and moved part of the application into an initial RAM file system. Okay. Started the application right after the initial set of drivers was loaded, mm-hmm. and application was already showing certain uh, activity on the display, but mm-hmm. not at the kernel level, but at application level. Yes. And then... Um, the application or the entire system proceeded with loading additional device drivers and starting the rest of the application. Uh, so I think that that's um, a very uh, nice approach to more complex applications where, um, again, the boot time is of a value to end user. Mm-hmm. But application is complex enough that provides a lot of features and would not ever be able to start up in time to, to provide that experience. Yeah. What? Yeah, so that's a ton of engineering. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I, I forgot this because we were talking about the init process, mm. and I, I guess one of the things to impress upon you know, those listening to the podcast is that init and Linux must never stop. Uh, <laughs> because because I mean, yeah. we talk about substituting init and changing things around in Linux. Anytime init stops, everything stops, and so that whatever initial process you choose to run, you have to make sure that it is either you know it either is very cautious about what it what it does, or that it delegates its work to other processes that it watches, or that you use the trusty init that comes with the system that sort of includes a watchdog. Yeah. Because as in, in, as in terms of, um, because as soon as that application stops, you'll get a kernel panic. Yeah. That <laughs> And at that point, you're dead. I mean, the system will stop functioning. And for a lot of users, that's... That, that's generally not the experience they're looking for. So uh, you have a lot of experience, Gene, with System 5 you need. Um, what are the options to, to SIS 5 in it? Uh, can you simply not have SIS 5 in it in your, in your root file system? Don't, don't need it at all. Zippo. Okay. So what, what's, what's, the, uh, um, what's the case? What's the uh, example? How can you do that? Well, the trick is whenever you start up the kernel, Whenever the kernel starts, it, it and you know what? You put me on the spot because I can't remember the exact programs that it looks for. But it'll fish around the system for an init. It'll look in uh, uh, ETC. It'll look on the root directory. It'll look in SBIN. And it looks for an init program to run. If it, uh, That's if you don't say init equals on the kernel command line. If you say init equals something, it'll look for exactly what that something is. But in the absence of you telling it what the initial thread to run, it'll then fish through the system. I think it looks in bin and then an SBIN, and then off the root directory mm. for some initial program to run. Mm. Um, that, that's a, what the kernel will do. If you pass it a program to run, it'll load that in. Matter of fact, it'll do a thread start just as though you executed it from the bash shell, from a shell. It'll do a thread start with that command and defer execution there. So that's one way of uh, simply running your application yep. without any... Uh, 
any sort of initialization subsystem. If, if your application is simple enough, comes as uh, one module perhaps, um, mm -hmm. you, can, you can just call init equals application. The yeah, the name of your program and you're off. Um, the, 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 so the hazard behind that is, is that your application had better run. Mm. And as a matter of fact, it had better not crash. It's two, it's two things. It better start running. That's one thing. And then once it's running, it better not stop. Right. Uh, because your system will stop. And that's why a lot of folks will use init. Yes. That even, the ones, even the one that comes with the system is, is uh, you know, the, the standard Linux init is fairly small. BusyBox's init is smaller yet. And the whole job of init is it will read through a file called etc init tab. And you can look at the help for that. Mm -hmm. But it'll look through there for certain lines of code, you know, for certain lines that specify when certain scripts are run. And it has the concept of a respawn. And that's what's really helpful yeah. for for your system in that if if whatever happens that your application dies, and it will see its death and then restart it again. Plus, this is also a way of potentially being able to capture, if not uh, more, um, failure in a field. So if, yes. if you want to debug a problem in a field and you're in early stages of um, your project release mm -hmm. and you have alpha customers, you want to be able to, to gather as much information as you can in, uh, when a failure of some sort occurs or yes. uh, misbehavior. Um, but uh, once the application is proven to uh, work reliably, Mm -hmm. That would be one of the options. Right? Oh, sure. I mean, one of the things you may want to do is that you know, so you, so you set up your little System Five script and or not System Five. I'm pardon me. You, set, you use init and you set up your init tab, and your init tab can then run a script that says you know slash bin slash run my program, mm. which can be a shell script, mm -hmm. even though it takes a little bit of overhead to invoke a shell. But that shell script can do something like run the program, and then after the after the program ends, can produce some sort of diagnostic output. The concept, the concept being, is that your program should run and it should block at your program yeah. forever yeah. or until the system shuts down. Yeah. And then, if it exits your program, then it can produce some diagnostic output that you can store. Hopefully, this device has something something that's writable mm -hmm. at the time, but can do something. But can write out some state to a file, and then when it's respawned by init, it'll begin running again. So you can get a little bit of logging that way to see if things died. Uh, and that's that's an important half step. And I guess once you're confident that it won't stop, you can get rid of that little wrapper script, and you'll save yourself, you know, tenth of a second as it doesn't have to interpret that shell file. So uh, let's push a bit further in that optimization. Sure. Uh, is is root file system needed at all? Most definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, you must have a root file system for a Linux uh, mm -hmm. machine to start. Mm -hmm. um, the system will insist on mounting some root file system. I know with 2.6, there's this initramfs concept, which is a root file system that's co-resident with the kernel, let's say. Yes. And and it's and in fact, it's just an alias on top of the node cache. There are some reasons why you don't want to use that for a production system, um, but as that cache on as a representation of that node cache, it'll populate some area of memory. And that'll become the root file system, mm -hmm. and then eventually the system will want to mount another root file system, be it so instructed. Well, but you right. must have an initial, but you must have a root well, file system for. It Linux. doesn't necessarily have to um, mount another root file system if you have enough information inside the initial RAM file system. But that's correct. The uh, 
I'm thinking still about a scenario where you have one application that's proven to be reliable, you want to deploy it in a field, um, you want to deploy only one image um, mm -hmm. that would update all the pieces of the system. An initial RAM file system is really a, a perfect approach because um, it, it allows you to um, keep only a number of files that you need yep. for the root file system, mm -hmm. but uh, when you run, um, when you compile the kernel with that initial RAM file system, actually building initial RAM file system is part of a kernel build process. Yes, yeah, yeah, I know. It's right in there with two sixes. Yeah, so so um, it's, uh, the, the output is really only one single file that contains all the um, pieces of a Linux kernel um, and, uh, and your application. Now, mm -hmm. if, if you're planning to do a staged booting, um, there's the process is a bit more involving because you want to export uh, device drivers into the root file system. Mm -hmm. And if you use initial RAM file system, uh, you basically have to call uh, make modules on the kernel first, then make sure that modules are installed in the appropriate subdirectories where you keep the, your initial RAM file system, and then run. The actual uh, Linux kernel build. Yeah, there's I know there's some sleight of hand involved yeah. to get everything set up, but the important part is is that there's most certainly a root file system. Mm -hmm. Most certainly one. It may not be visible, yep, uh, or as visible, but it's most certainly present. And and without that, you don't you, you don't get a running system. But one of the ha I wanted to point out that one of the hazards of using something like uh, the initial RAM disk uh, file system is that it is a view into the node cache, and it's not bounded. Mm -hmm. So if you set something like, I know Linux, a lot of Linux users will have a slash TMP directory. Mm -hmm. Well, you can keep writing the TMP until you exhausted physical memory. Yep. Uh, so you do, it's, it's not a riskless system it, 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 in, in that respect. Yeah. So your one dependable application at least needs to be cognizant that it's running on a system where you could get into a pickle with respect to memory allocate or with with respect to how much it writes to the to the file system because if it logs something once a second or once a pick an interval well eventually you're going to exhaust memory if the system stays running long enough that's a good point that you just brought up because if you if your application or linux kernel is configured in such a way that it logs data oh, into yeah. a root file system Wow, that, that that would be a challenge. That would be a problem for um, a little handheld device. I mean, this kind of data is very useful for, again, debugging and diagnosing any issues. Mm -hmm. um, but having that in a, in a deployed device, in a deployed solution, might cause a lot of problems. Yeah, you just have to keep your eyes open. Yeah. You really have to keep your eyes open. And that goes, and, and that goes as well for any services that you're running. As, because it, your application may be... Fine. It may be compliant, may not do anything, but you have to keep one eye peeled towards. Yep. Let's say you're running a little HTTP server. Yep. Well, if it's producing some log files, yeah, you better configure it, it well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You need to be cognizant of that, and at least yeah. you know, uh, and at least either get rid of it, you know, or get sorry, get rid of the logging, not necessarily the application. Yep. Get rid of the logging, or somehow introduce a file system where you can meter the amount of space. So eventually you get an out of space on your file system without consuming all your physical memory. So we're getting the, the stop talking sign yeah. uh, that we've, we've overrun our limit. I think we could probably blab about this for a well, while. Well, we could probably talk for uh, a few more hours, but, um, well, let's save some for the next uh, episode. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, if you would have um, any questions, please do contact us at uh, podcast at We are very much interested in your feedback and uh, your thoughts about uh, what stuff that we talk about here with Gene um, is interesting to you. And if there are areas that you would like us to explore more, please let us know. Yeah, A, a lot of users, too, the, the, the email the email is at podcast at timesys.com. But if, if you feel like it, well, there's, not, there, there's also a comment link. But most of our users are actually pretty shy. Uh, the, the listeners that we have, they don't do the comment page. And they'll actually write to us like, well, I didn't want to put this on the comment page, but no. Yeah. And I really feel bad because they're contributing some very interesting information that I would like to be to see on the comment page. Um, so, you know, don't, don't be shy. We won't, we won't flame you or, or anything like that if you leave a comment. Uh, for us than uh, uh, there on the comment page. More, more than welcome to do that along with emailing. Okay. Well, with that, thank you very much for your attention today. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Okay, bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Timesys. Check out our new site to get free code, discuss, and learn about embedded Linux development. Go to timesys.com today.